I'd like to thank each of you who didn't leave at intermission. Uh, that you pretended that the first session was good enough that you would come back. Um, so here's the deal. So when I teach on cultural engagement, one of the things I like to do after a more theoretical talk like we just had is to have something more practical. Now, the challenge is that you know, culture is a pretty massive thing, right? And so I have to find something that all of us can, that there's some common ground. So I can't do art, per se, you know, can't do science. I mean, that would leave most of us, including me, pretty much out. Uh, politics and economics, I mean, scholarship education, all of these are a lot more interesting to some folks than to others. I do think watching a movie is something that most people enjoy on one level or another. And so I want to do a, t- a talk entitled How to Watch a Movie. And what I'm going to be doing here is I'm going to be employing, implicitly employing my three questions. What is God's creational design? How has it been corrupted and misdirected by sin? How can we redirect it toward Christ? We're going to use movies to do it. Now, I grew up as a young cultural separatist. The only movies I watched were Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And uh, the only TV shows I was allowed to watch were Little House on the Prairie, sometimes The Waltons. Does anybody remember? Anyone of a certain age remember The Waltons? Um, in terms of music, um, it was pretty much patriotic hymns. Uh, excuse me, patriotic there's some of those patriotic songs and hymns, pretty much. And uh, I didn't really have any of these sorts of questions operative. And But as I got older, when I got to college, I went a little crazy on music and movies and wasn't equipped to think critically or discerningly. And then finally, when I came to Southeastern, a professor named Russ Bush, the one I mentioned a moment ago, began to teach me how to think Christianly and critically about anything that I encountered in life and one of the ways he taught us to do that was through thinking Christianly and critically about movies. Movies tell stories about everything in the world. So if you can learn to think Christianly and critically through these stories that are told by Hollywood, it's like practice for the real world, in a sense. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. Now, most people, or many people view movies as mere entertainment. And I'll argue tonight that it is a lot more than entertainment. In fact, many movies, in my opinion, aren't even entertaining. They're much more than entertainment because screenwriters and directors have worldviews. They actually have heart orientations. And their heart orientation radiates outward into everything they do, including their screenwriting, their movie directing, and their movie production. And especially when you look look at a screenwriter or director's whole body of work over the course of 30 or 40 years, the types of movies they chose to make, the themes and philosophical messages in those movies, you get a picture of who that person is often. <coughs> Screenwriters have, have worldviews. Now, we tend to ignore this. A lot of times Christians will judge movies on a more superficial basis. How many bad words are in a movie or not? You know, there's nothing wrong with taking, you should take that into account. So don't hear me say that you shouldn't. But, I mean, there are more important things that's, stake even in that sort of thing or how much violence is in a movie well that should be taken into account should it not but there's actually some even deeper things than that Uh, other people rather than judging movies on things like that will judge a movie on whether or not it makes them cry you know if julia roberts is in it you're likely to cry in a happy way and so you'll go back to see that or if you're a guy you probably don't want to cry at a movie would be my bet And what you would like to do, instead of being moved emotionally to happy tears, is you would like to growl and cheer on somebody who's beating up another boxer or warding off the enemies that are coming against your country. Anyway, so we have different things that draw us to movies, different ways that we judge them. I want to encourage us to look deeper than any of those ways, than what happens to our emotions when we're in a movie, and look deeper than the government's movie rating syndicate. Whatever, because when I'm looking at for someone to tell me um, what's good or bad about a movie or about life, I tend to not look to government-approved organizations to do it for me. And so the rating system is good; it lets us know some things. But I want to go a lot deeper than the rating system: G, PG, PG-13, and R. Now, what I'm not going to do in this is tell you what movies we should go see and which ones we shouldn't. I'll leave that to you as parents, grandparents, or individuals. 
I will give some rule of thumbs on that in the end. What I'm going to do instead is uh, I'm going to do um, several things. First, I want to start out and wet our taste buds by giving examples of some very obviously pro-Christian mythologies and some very obvious anti-Christian mythologies, easy ones. Then what I want to do after that is I want to show you that there are nine things that happen in every movie. Every single movie. It's that predictable. Nine things that happen in every movie. If you paid attention in literature class, you know this. And if you can do if you can figure out those nine things, you can figure out what the point of the movie is. What the screenwriter and director are trying to do to you intellectually and emotionally through the movie they made. And what they're trying to do to your wallet. And then what we'll do is I'm going to cluster together some major themes in Hollywood cinema and give examples of movies that promote those themes. I'll do some good ones and some bad ones. Some ones we agree with and some ones we don't. If we had time, we could do the same with song lyrics. We don't have time. Maybe it'll be for another year. So let's go with some obviously pro-Christian mythologies and anti-Christian mythologies for a moment. Now, I say that these are obvious. They're going to be obvious to you in retrospect. They may not have been obvious when you were watching. And I think because on the whole, we haven't learned to think critically as, as much as, as we could. I mean, I certainly had to be taught this stuff. I didn't just naturally come into it on my own. Um, <clears throat> Pro-Christian mythologies. One is Braveheart. How many of you have actually seen Braveheart? Now, there, I've, I've only seen an edited version. I've heard that there's an unedited version that can be unsavory. Um, but the screenwriter, Randall Wallace, said that he chose this historical moment and chose to portray it in a movie because this story, he said, was a human analog of Christ's salvation that he would hope would point people to that. There are not many screenwriters and producers that are willing to say that sort of thing publicly, but he did. So in this movie, you have uh, William Wallace and his martyrdom set the people of Scotland free. And we're going to come back to this movie in a moment. or Well, maybe I'll go ahead and treat it now. So you have a hero who has adversaries, bad adversaries, Longshanks, King of England, and the nobles who are coming against him, oppressing his people, those bad English people coming against the Scots. I'm part Scottish and part English. I'm not sure which side to take here. <laughs> and part German. <laughs> I mean, this got lots of Europe in my veins. And uh, so... So basically what happens is Randall Wallace gives his life to set Scotland free. And at the very end of the movie, there's a final realization that he had, that uh, he was, that the music goes away in the movie and the screen begins to spin as he's being put on the rack and tortured. And he focuses in on a little kid with pure blonde hair, signifying that he was Scottish. And as he sees this kid watching him die, what's being communicated is, is he's saying it's worth it for me to die to inspire my people, that we can fight off the bad English people so that our children don't have to grow up under the oppression of the Brits, of the English. Okay? And so he chose that historical moment to, to point to Christ's salvation that liberates us. Another example would be the Green Mile. Has anyone seen the Green Mile? Anyone? Okay, about half of you have seen the Green Mile. Uh, it, uh, in this movie, you have a prisoner, John Coffey, He's a wrongly accused black man. He's a minority. And he's able to heal infirmities by the touch. He's a Christ figure, just like William Wallace was in Braveheart. And what happens is when he heals somebody, the evil is drawn into his own body and causes him an unspeakable amount of pain. And his body is just thrashing about violently. And then, it's weird, I know, but he releases the evil in what looks like the form of swarm of flies or something that comes out of him at the end of the movie he dies the innocent dies in the place of the guilty he dies wrongly convicted and in dying he defeats death because the electric chair was never used again in that state because of that because of his wrongful accusation they don't use the death penalty in his state i'm not going to make a point about death penalty i'm making a point about the story that the writer of this, and you're going to be surprised who it is, uh, the writer of this wanted to portray the gospel story. It's actually Stephen King. Um, so Stephen King's written some pretty awful stuff. I've never read a Stephen King novel, but Stephen King has wrestled with the gospel. Stephen King's been part of Bible studies. 
don't know why he does what he does. He may have done this just for financial gain. Because people love the gospel, variations of the gospel story. It's the most profound and most beautiful story ever told. It's the story of the universe. And it gets people to buy. I'm not sure why people make stories that trace the biblical storyline, but they do. Let me give you an anti-Christian mythology, and I'm going to encourage you not to watch the movie that I'm describing. I watched it a long time ago. If I could go back, I wouldn't watch it again. There was a series of movies called the Hannibal Trilogy about a cannibal, Hannibal the Cannibal. And it really glorifies an evil man. And I'm going to talk about one of those stories, um, the first one. And in this movie, the hero of the movie is a horrible person. So that's where you already know that you have an antichrist mythology. The hero, the overcomer, the Messiah, so to speak, of the story is a horrible person. He's a cannibal, but he's a very sophisticated cannibal. You know, he he eats fava beans and drinks Chianti, and apparently that's sophisticated, and they make a big deal out of it in the movie. He's the funniest and the most brilliant person in the movie. The FBI uses him as a to help their profilers who are not nearly as bright as him. So he helps them catch other uh, uh, killers, sort of like you know, white collar, something like that. And what happens is he's betrayed. A cop named Patsy finds out that he's really a bad guy and betrays him. And you know what Hannibal does to Patsy? He hangs him upside down and his bowels spill out on the ground. And this is right after Patsy has betrayed him for thirty million or for three million thirty million dollars, play off of the pieces of silver. Um participates in his cannibalism at a dinner scene which is a mockery of the Lord's Supper and in which he makes fun of the Apostle Paul. At the very end of the movie the victory is that he's beat the FBI he's killed people and he's eaten them and he's done some really bad things and so that's why you know this is bad but at the very end the very last scene of the movie he's in a jumbo jet an airliner 757 ascending it's the last thing you see. So a screenwriter thought that he would mock everything that we hold true and dear. And you've got a good number of folks that watch that and for whatever reason, theologically, are not able to see, probably because we don't reflect on what's true and dear and precious to us. Um, but uh, so those are some really obvious examples of pro-Christ and anti-Christ mythologies. Now I'm going to do, but most movies are a lot less obvious, right, than that. And that's when it gets a little tougher. So what I want to do before we go through a few movies is I want to list the nine things that happen in every movie. If you don't get anything else out of part two other than this, this will help you um, to, to begin to think Christianly and critically. See, movies are stories, and life is a story. Movies have actors, and life has actors, various actors, people who act and interact. And when you learn to think Christianly and critically with movies and practice in that manner, it really does help you, I think, in the bigger story of your life. So the first thing every movie has is a theme. This could also be called the moral of the story or the message. How many of you have seen Shrek? Anyone? Okay, so it's a clean movie and very witty. It's made for kids. It's really made for adults because the humor is something that only someone in their 20s, 30s, or older would get. Anyway, in Shrek, the theme of that movie, the moral of the movie, the moral of the story is that if you encounter somebody who's different than you, Shrek is green, and that's different. His, ulcers, his ears look like saucers. He's an animated figure. And, it, and people are afraid of him and think he's weird and won't hang out with him and so forth. Pretty simple storyline. But the theme of the movie is that if someone's different from you, don't be alienated from them just because they're different. You could still love them and embrace them and show them hospitality. Not a bad theme. You could take it in the wrong direction, but a pretty good theme. So that's the thing. What about the Rocky movies? Anyone in here seen any of the Rocky movies? Okay. Yeah, so they're, they're all the same. Um, <laughs> you know, really, and, and what you have in those movies, it, you know, the theme of the movie usually is uh, perseverance, endurance over challenges of some sort. What about uh, what about Terminator or Jurassic Park? Has anyone, has it, who's seen w- at least one of those? Okay. Almost all science fiction movies are the same, or many of them are the same, and they have a pretty good message. And the message is you should be very wary of science and technology because they're, they can be used for powerfully good or powerfully bad ends. That's the point of both of those movies, you know. Yes, if you're not careful, you'll get eaten by dinosaurs or 
you're not careful, a cyborg will come and destroy your town and the army. Um, so the second thing that every movie has is a hero. And the hero is the main character of the movie. Traditionally, it was always a male, but often, increasingly now, there's a female hero in a movie, a heroine. Um, this is the main character in the movie. I'll take the movie Rocky, and we'll use that for some of these because, you know, they've made dozens of them. And, you know, Sylvester Stallone is like 80 years old now, and he's still boxing people in new Rocky movies. It takes a lot of Botox to get him ready. His face has more movable parts than I have ever seen. I mean, it's amazing. But, uh, you know, in, in, yeah, so Rocky. He's always the hero of the Rocky movies. Um, the third thing in every movie is the hero's goal. Now, the hero's goal is what drives a movie. It drives the story, okay? And um, usually the hero is obsessed with that goal. It drives everything that the hero does in the movie. So often the, the goal is to win the fight or to get a girl. And in the Rocky movies, it's one of the two, or both, usually. Win the fight and get the girl. Fourth, the adversary. Now, every movie has an adversary. In, in literature class, in English class, it's often called a villain. I don't want to do that because... I'll tell you why in a minute. The adversary, depending on what the screenwriter is doing, it might be best for you as a Christian to like the adversary and dislike the hero. Increasingly, the adversary who the screenwriter doesn't want you to like is someone who holds to Judeo-Christian morality. And the hero is somebody that hates that. And so the roles are, are flipped. I'm not calling him the villain, just the adversary. Now, the adversary is the person or the thing that comes against the hero. Now, there's all sorts of adversaries. Adversary could be a person. In Rocky movie, like in Rocky IV, um, uh, he's fighting a Russian named, anyone know? Drago. Yeah, Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's fighting Drago. And American screenwriters t portrayed Russians as uh, foreboding because we had patriotic reasons to think that Russians were scary. So they made Russians really tall and gave them crew cuts. But it's Russians never wore crew cuts, ever. You know, so it was, anyway, Russians are always drunk, huge, and have crew cuts um, in movies. So anyway, Drago is fighting Rocky, and, and also Drago is shooting up with steroids because Russians do that, of course. It, but anyway, so they fight. Drago is the, the uh, obstacle. But it doesn't have to be a person. That The adversary could be, um, could be an individual, uh, could be an animal, like in The Lion King, who's the adversary? Scar. It could be a... Force, like in Forrest Gump, I think the adversary is chance. The irrational, random nature of the universe, that there is no providential hand guiding history. Utterly irrational. You never know what you're going to get because there's no one who's intending it. Now, I know you like Forrest Gump, and I'm going to say some nice things and also some bad things about it. Now, I need you to prepare yourself emotionally. I'm going to say mean things about actors and movies that you love and you're emotionally tied to them because they make you, they give you happy tears and they give you smiles. And then I'm going to say nice things about ones that you don't like. And you can sort it out in the end, whether I'm right or wrong, okay? Um, but uh, so, so there's an adversary. It also could be nature, like in the, the, the Perfect Storm, the movie. The adversary is actually a storm that the captain is at odds with. Fifth is a character flaw. Now, if the adversary is an external obstacle to the hero's goal, the character flaw is an internal obstacle. So in almost every movie, it'll be pretty quickly apparent what the internal character flaw is of the hero. So the hero will not see the world in the right way. And usually you'll be able to tell at the beginning of the movie, oh, he's an idiot. He shouldn't see it that way. So he doesn't see the world in the right way. Or he wants something that he shouldn't want. Or he wants to do something he shouldn't do. And the, the product, producer and director, you, they do things, and the screenwriter, they do things to give you signals at the beginning of the movie that you shouldn't like that direction they went ahead. That girl that he likes and he wants to marry, she's bad. You do not want her. You know, she'll steal your money or whatever. Um, and they show you so that you don't like it. Now, by the end of the movie, if you have a, a lighthearted comedy or a drama, then the hero has corrected his character flaw or at least recognized it and started to correct it. Um, if you have a tragedy or a dark comedy, then usually what happens is the hero never corrects his character flaw. He just dies and that's the end. Those don't go over as well in the box office and everything's about money in America, so you don't get tragedies, you know. And that's part of reality. Lots of people never 
correct their character flaws, so to speak. But it doesn't sell tickets. Nobody wants to, you know, leave the movie theater and, and want to die because of how horrible the movie, the story was, you know. We want to leave and be happy. Happy tears, remember, and smiles, or America won, or, you know, or whatever. Uh, number six, the apparent defeat. So in the middle of the movie, the hero is going to be blocked by the adversary and the character flaw. External obstacle and internal obstacle, and it's going to look like he's going to fail. If you're watching Top Gun, the plane is going to crash. If you're watching Rocky, he's on his back, and he's at number eight on the count. You don't know if he's going to. He's wobbling. He's holding on to the ring. Is he going to stand up or is he not? And uh, depending on how much you get into a movie, you're, you are, you know, clawing your chair or, or yelling, or if you're too tough for that, you're, you know, you're, you are nervous right now. And if the screenwriter and producer have done their job, you're nervous. Parent defeat. Number seven, final confrontation. About 80% of the way through any movie, there's a final confrontation. So I'm sorry that it's so predictable, but it is. Um, so there's a final confrontation between the hero and the adversary. So let's, um, let's give a fake scenario for a moment. Let's say there's a cop and robber movie, and in this case, the cop's a good guy and the hero. It doesn't happen very often in Hollywood anymore. Usually, you know, Al Pacino is a bank robber, and he's the hero. Or Ocean's 11, 12, and 13, you're pulling from a bunch of felons to pull off their... They're robberies, and they're the heroes of the movie. But uh, let's, let's pretend that the police officer is a good person and is the hero, and that the bad guy is a bad guy and ought to be put in prison. We'll just pretend. So in this movie, the police officer, we'll call him Frank. Frank breaks into, the, he goes into the bank, and he catches, we'll call him Bob, Bob the bad guy. And Bob the bad guy gets caught, and Frank has him, and Frank says, we grew up together why did you have to turn out like this? I mean, now I've got to take you in. And then all of a sudden, Bob the bad guy, all of his team, they're using plastic explosives in another room to blow apart the vault. We all know how to do it. We've seen it on the movie theaters. But they come in and they get Frank, and they've got big machine guns trained on Frank the cop. And so now Frank the cop has to put his six-shooter down. The good guys always only carry pistols. Have you noticed that on television shows? And the bad guys have heavy artillery. And so he has to put his gun down, and then the villain, Bob the bad guy, says, ha, ha, ha. And then he says bad things to Frank, like, yeah, we did grow up together, and I gave you a chance to be the inside guy in this robbery, but you're always better than everybody else, so now I'm going to make a canoe out of your head with my big gun, and you can't do anything about it, and we're going to put all of our cash in the Cayman Islands, or we're going to go and drink fruit drinks on the beach for the rest of our life. But then usually, you mean... One good thing about American movies is they want the good guy often to win. And so Frank does something. He's got a boomerang, a razor blade boomerang that he throws, and it kills all the bad guys. Or something happens, and he wins. Okay? But anyway, there's a, there's a final confrontation. In the final confrontation, here's the important part. The bad guy says something. The good guy says something. The rationale that's put in the mouth of the hero, the hero of the movie, whatever rationale in his mouth is the one that the screenwriter, producer, and director want you to believe and like for whatever reason. And the whole movie is inexorably driven toward that. Whatever the adversary says is what he wants you not to like. So if you find yourself thinking that what the adversary is saying, even if it's put badly by the director and producer, if what the adversary is saying is something good, then you'll know you disagree with the screenwriter, producer, and director. And that happens increasingly in Hollywood cinema. Number eight, the self-revelation. So usually near the end of the movie, if you have a drama or a lighthearted comedy, the hero realizes where he's been wrong. What he wanted was not what he needed, and, and so forth. And so let's say that it was a guy, you know, wanting, chasing a girl. I know that's a shocker that a movie might have that theme. But um, so there's a guy, and at the beginning of the movie, he likes this girl that looks like a supermodel. So she's five, ten and a half. She weighs 63 pounds. <laughs> she wears Dolce & Cabana dresses and has Louis Vuitton purses, maybe. I, I don't know what. I just hear these words. I'm not sure what Dolce & Cabana is, except that they said something good on the news a few weeks ago. And um, so anyway, but at the beginning of the movie, the screenwriter and the director and producer let you know that she is a worthless hag. I mean, she is bad. They show her furtively taking money out of her fiancé's account, or she's flirting with another man. And there's music that lets you know that she's bad. The camera angle lets you know she's bad. And you don't like her. And you're like, wow. 
You know, every time he looks at her, that's you're thinking, dude, don't go for her. She is going to ruin you. You're going to rip your heart out. And then, you know, finally he realized, it didn't dawn on him, he's a guy, he's stupid. So, you know, it's 80% of the way through the movie before he realizes, wait a minute, I, w- I would rather, you know, be skinned and rolled in salt than marry that woman. I mean, it's like, you know, dripping faucet or living in the corner of a roof, you know. Um, and so what happens is he ends up falling in love with the girl next door. She works at the grocery store. She, uh, what's her name? Oh, gosh, she played in, the girl who always plays this role, she played in Jerry Maguire. She's, or does she not, not, no, it's not her. It's the other girl that played in the movie with Adam Sandler. I'm embarrassed to admit I've seen an Adam Sandler movie. Hmm? Drew Barrymore. She's always the girl next door. She's always the girl next door. In any movie, if you want a good girl next door, get Drew Barrymore. She's pretty. She's not 5'10". She weighs more than 80 pounds because she's not a heroin addict. She is a normal girl, and she's beautiful and sweet, and, and they live ha- happily ever after. And it's a pretty good storyline. Guys make fun of it, but it's a good storyline. It's a deeply good storyline that the guy ends up with the right girl and not the wrong girl, and vice versa. The number nine, resolution. The resolution in a movie, it shows the result of the hero's change. Okay? Happily ever after, sadly ever after. This is what happens in movies. And here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to do a lightning round of examples because we want to have good time for Q&A. So I'm going to go five or six minutes at the most here and give some different themes. I mean, I'm going to – don't even try to take notes. I mean, seriously, don't even, don't even give a thought towards taking notes. <clears throat> One theme would be that God's hand is not in control. And that would be Forrest Gump. The best of my ability to read this movie, this is about the, that the world is marked by randomness and chance and that there is no providential design. At the beginning of the movie, you have a feather floating and landing. At the end of the movie, you have a feather floating and landing. You have things like life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get all through the movie. Now, there are good things about the movie. Forrest Gump is a pretty good guy, and so it's okay to like it. It's okay to pull for him, but the overall message is not a good one. Um, and I know that you're upset with me. People get more upset at this point when I say bad things about that and Shawshank Redemption. I mean, they don't even like me. They don't even talk to me anymore over these two movies. But I mean, So there are redemptive elements of the movie, but the overarching message is one that I profoundly uh, disagree with. Um, uh, Judea, here's a theme. Christian morality is bad. It's inferior and actually, these days, reprehensible. There are lots of those. I mean... We could do a few days of seminars just on this kind of thing. So, uh, for example, uh, Pleasantville. Anyone seen Pleasantville? Okay, in Pleasantville, the beginning of the movie is in black and white, but when the woman bites into an apple and at that moment decides to commit adultery on her husband, the movie comes into full color. So I probably don't need to do commentary on that one. You probably get that. She came alive and really was saved and was redeemed and learned to learn, came alive as a human, became fully human. By cheating on her husband. What about Oceans 11, 12, and 13? Has anyone even, y'all, have y'all heard about those? Okay, a lot of people like them because Oceans 11, 12, and 13 have lots of cool actors and actresses. I mean, 11 of them, 12 of them, and 13 of them, actually. And they're, what they are, basically, is they're awesome. I mean, they say cool and funny things. They're dressed nicely. They're good looking. And they're really good at what they do, which is committing felonies. And they're the heroes of these movies, and everyone is pulling for them. They're, they're trash. They're absolute trash. Among the worst movies ever made in the history of cinema. I mean, there's nothing redeeming about these movies. There's kindergartners who could teach these producers and directors lessons and morality easily. And yet, we just put all that aside because there's great music, cool, funny, sexy, awesome people pulling off amazing robberies and so forth. Um, there's a lot of movies about taking justice into your own hands. Um, oh, I did, oh, let's do some positive ones for a minute. What about pro-family movies? There have been an increasing number of pro-family movies coming out of Hollywood at an interesting and good time in the life of our country. For example, The Incredibles. Has anyone seen The Incredibles? This movie is incredible. I love it. Um, in this movie, at the beginning of the movie, the family is fighting with each other, right? But they realize that the real enemy is without. So they band together and fight the enemies that come to tear apart the family. And so the father is, what's his gift? Strong. The mother, what does she do? 
stretches herself. That's what mothers do. They get up three or four times or five times in the middle of the night for their babies. And then they do even worse and more difficult things for the rest of their lives, for their children. They stretch themselves. Um, the little girl, she has two superpowers. What are they? She becomes invisible, and she also creates a force field. So her force field is she can keep everybody out, out. representative of girls keeping people out from their emotional lives. They can keep you out if they want to. And you can try as hard as you want to, dad and mom, and you probably aren't going to get in until, until they let you in. She can also disappear. She can just hide. What about the boy? Speed. He's fast, you know, lightning quick. And then the little baby has a the little baby has a superpower. I don't know how to describe it. We can just chuckle about it and we won't talk about it. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> not sure how to interpretate. Interpretate. It's a new word. Interpret that aspect of the movie. But basically, it's a, it's a good theme. It's that the family should love each other, pull together, each person play their part to keep the family from being broken apart. The movie also makes fun of um, a lawsuit culture, suing other people and claiming, yeah, not working for what you get suing people and things like that. Um, oh, man, lots of other movies. Uh, okay, so what about God doesn't exist? That's a pretty big theme. And uh, most often it's Tom Hanks or Robin Williams who acts in those movies. You're going to get upset with me again. But, for example, Castaway with Tom Hanks. This movie is um, Robinson Crusoe turned on its head. So in Robinson Crusoe, you have a guy who's shipwrecked, and what he does is he does awesome things on an island, and included among that, he worships God. But what happens in this movie is a FedEx plane crashes, and Tom Hanks is, see the pilot or the passenger? Passenger. passenger the pilot dies, and is on an island all by himself. And so one of the first things that happens is he buries the pilot. And when he gets finished burying him, he says, huh, that's it. Walks away. And that's your first clue that something's being said. In this movie, he relives evolutionary stages of mankind. There is one um, religious symbol in the movie. And that is Wilson, the volleyball. And he needs Wilson as a crutch. So he talks to Wilson. It's a fake person because he needs a fake person to give him guidance. And it's helpful for that limited reason because there's no one else around but. That represents God in the movie. It's God is a human construction. It's a fiction. It's something we make up that can be helpful for some people, but stronger people wouldn't need it. Um, there's a lot more, you know, in that movie, but that's the whole point of the movie. And Tom Hanks acts in a lot of movies like that. There's a few good ones that he acts in, but he's a you know, he's a very warm actor. I mean, people like him. He seems like the guy who could live next door, you know. And a very warm and nice voice and everything. But he acts in horrible movies. Like he picks movies that go against everything we believe. So if you go to it, at least know what's being said. And and I've got to quit. I mean, I really have to get a leash on myself and stop. Um, <clears throat> a few principles. I'll recommend a book to you during Q&A if you want to. That'll take you a lot deeper on the movie theme. By a guy who knows a lot more about movies than I do. And that you'll enjoy. But let me stop with a few themes. I do just uh, with a few um, principles and parameters. I do want to close by saying I want to urge discretion and balance in watching movies. Just because I'm up here listing a bunch of different movies doesn't mean I think it's just go watch whatever you want to. There needs to be discretion and balance, and you find those things through the guidance of pastors and parents and friends. Work on these sorts of things together. Um, keep your emotions in check in a movie. You need to realize that you have master manipulators playing with your emotions in a movie, for better or for worse. So it's not bad. A movie's not bad because it, it plays with your emotions. It's only bad if it plays with them in the wrong way toward the wrong end. So keep your emotions in check. I mean, some of you are going to find yourself liking a certain actor or actress so much that on the inside you're refusing to think that they would choose to act in movies that are saying something so against everything you hold true and dear. Some of you are going to have a hard time realizing that one of your favorite, one or two or three of your favorite movies in the world that you own VHS cassettes, maybe even beta cassettes of it, <laughs> if anyone remembers that, you know, that you've cried to and laughed to and you and your honey have had movie nights, you know, once a year for 40 years for this movie. The movie's actually awful. Doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't watch it. It means that if you do watch the thing, you shouldn't find yourself agreeing with it or emotionally approving of some aspect of it that's wrong. Um, 
Number three, is it okay to watch movies that have sins portrayed? Well, it depends on which ones and how they're portrayed. Never any excuse for watching pornography or, or that sort of thing. I don't want to be too explicit. We've got a varied group in the room right now. Um, but uh, that's not okay. But it is okay to watch things that have sins portrayed. I mean, the Bible has... I mean, I have a five-year-old and four-year-old girl, and I read the Gospels. There's so much evil and so much sin portrayed, and they're always asking me about these sins and these evils, and I can't even explain it half the time because my youngest daughter right now gets night terrors. I mean, for, and from the Bible, from Bible lessons. So I have to be really careful what I'm, how, how deeply I go into it or, and how much I don't for that particular daughter. So we can see sins portrayed. We see them portrayed all the time in life, but we ask for wisdom and discernment what to watch and what not to on that count. You always want to ask movies like, what does the hero stand for? What does the adversary stand for? What are the things that are said to be obstacles to the hero achieving something? Does the movie celebrate what we know to be evil, or does it condemn it? And if so, which evils? What does the movie consider evil? That's a great question to ask. And what is it that saves you from that evil? And the evil often is oppressive Christian morality. And what will save you from it is discarding it. You know, so those are questions you want to ask. Another one is, how would I rewrite this movie as a believer? That's a fascinating question to, to, to ask in a group if you have a movie viewing of some sort. Um, I grew up as a entirely, completely a cultural separatist and thought it was wrong to ever even go to a movie. And I uh, was told that one of the lines of reasoning, there were many different lines of reasoning, many of those lines of reasoning conflicting with each other, but... One of them was, what about offending your weaker brother? Usually the weaker brother who didn't want me to go to a movie was a strong, very strongly opinionated brother and not weak. Um, and then I always say when there's kids in the room, honor your parents. Honor your parents and what they want you to watch or not watch. So um, that wraps up that portion uh, of it. And I'm going to, I think Pastor Tom is going to come up now and... <clears throat> Well, thank you very much. The, um, so two parts of a, of a good night. First, more paradigm setting in terms of how we look at life and how we understand culture. And, and I really appreciated that because um, I know when I was in seminary back in the early 90s, very little was given to understanding the kind of the architecture of the Bible, that creation and fall and redemption and restoration and Boy, it is a helpful paradigm in which to look at life. It really has been. And, and you went through it clearly and quickly and uh, very helpfully. So thank you for that. The movies, I totally agree with you on the Forrest Gump deal. I, I remember saying, <laughs> that is so nothing. It's like a movie about yeah. nothing. But but he was a great actor, and it had some funny yeah. lines in it, so I sucked right up to it. But um, <laughs> the, uh, One thing I will say, and, and I think you only brought 15. So I read through this this week. And, uh, and this is uh, Bruce's book. And it is really helpful in terms of uh, giving an initial understanding of the, of the uh, field at play. He has chapters on, he speaks about the nature of um, a theology of culture. And then he goes into culture and calling and how we understand our calling to the culture in the development of it. I love that. Tim Keller has done a marvelous job in terms of really promoting that. If you've read Every Good Endeavor, his book on work, mm-hmm. I think he really explains well uh, a very positive view of culture that helps us steer between that separatism or, or what we call, or, you know, Paul Marshall wrote a book about this uh, lifeboat theology. I referenced it a few weeks back in, in a sermon, this idea of the world is like the Titanic. It has just struck the iceberg. It's sinking. Get, save everybody you can. Don't worry about the boat. The boat's going down. Just get everybody, as many as you can, into in the lifeboats to save them, as opposed to any idea about, no, God's going to restore the Titanic. He says the ark culture is a better picture. You know, that life mm. is like the ark. We go into the ark, God brings about a restoration, and then we come right back to earth. So we mm. begin to set up. So, that was very good. But, but he talks about the arts and the sciences and politics, economics and wealth, scholarship and education, and the Christian mission in it. And very good read, accessible, clear, um, has a bibliography in the back for further reading. So anyways, it's a great book. Obviously, there's more <coughs> here than we have books, but uh, just want to recommend that to you. So I think we're supposed to have some questions. And uh, 
Nick's still trying to pull him off his phone. There you go. We're going high tech here in this place. <laughs> I, I would like you to speak to one issue before things, before we get to these questions. Is in terms of Ocean's Eleven, though, you know. <laughs> uh oh. I'm, I'm not defending anything here, but but speak to just for a minute the Robin Hood idea. You know, when yeah. it's an evil done against an evil, which makes the first evil kind of good. Yeah, so that's a good point, and that's that's what people will come back pretty often on 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 that. So I think one thing that I would say on that, when folks ask me, they'll, they'll say basically, listen, but these guys were robbing from some really bad people that ought to be robbed from. And so what I would say there is, you know, they were robbing from some really bad people. However, Scripture teaches us that God has ordained government to be the one who wields the sword and who punishes wrongdoers. And when we usurp that privilege, we're stepping outside of God's boundaries given in Scripture. So um, that also happens in revenge movies. Charles Bronson did a bunch of those, and those of you of a certain age will remember him. And, uh, you know, there's some today where somebody takes justice in their, their own hands. The Taken movies are a little bit different because in this movie, the person who he's avenging is not dead. It's his daughter, and she's alive, and he goes and saves her and liberates her, probably with maybe a bit more carnage than should have been the case but uh, there is a difference between a revenge movie and a father protecting his daughter while she's alive trying to find her right right so, so, so. at least with oceans 11 is a robin hood you know it's trying to justify it but the romans 13 is a is a yeah. good example to go to okay so here's some of the questions and then we can open it up to you and i had a few others as well maybe okay. um that may be off page a little bit from the film okay. more into politics and that sort of thing so one person asked, could you expound on the basis in Genesis 2 for driving the dominion and cultural mandates? For example, how do we get from working and keeping the garden to dominion over the earth and bringing out hidden potential from creation in areas beyond farming? So yeah, yeah. So are you? I, I, I assume what the question is asking is the Genesis account doesn't explicit talk about, explicitly talk about hidden potentials? Right. So is that yeah, what you think the question is? Yeah. yeah, so, you know, when it comes to addressing something as big as culture, the word culture, the concept of culture is actually not even mentioned in the Bible. So it's a word that we use in English to cluster a, a, a set of realities that the Bible does talk about repeatedly. And I think the best way to get at a set of realities like that often, as a start at least, is to look at, take an architectonic view of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, within which individual passages that teach about it are sort of framed and given a sort of a sense and a meaning. So the till the soil thing, um, so in God, one thing that Scripture does teach clearly, or, or it is there, it's right there in that particular text, is that God had said, and this is a pretty striking contrast, God had said, it's good, it's good, it's good, very good, and I'm finished. It's very good. And then turns around immediately and says, change it. So that's there in the text. It's not tied explicitly to all sorts of culture. The example we're given there is agriculture. So the way I, I get from agriculture to other types of culture is then to look at larger patterns in Scripture. What you see from this point on is humans building all sorts of culture. And they, they do it badly sometimes. Like in Genesis 4 through 11, we've seen it done bad, we see it done badly. But throughout the Scriptures, then you see it done well and you see it done badly. And you see God affirming it when it's done well like with Bezalel, the artist who uh, painted uh, the pomegranates and the different designs for the, uh, the, the tabernacle. Um, Bezalel, God affirmed him and said, I even filled you with my spirit as you did that. Right. So you have the seed idea of this in Genesis. And what I've done is I've taken basically my whole Bible view and, and read back in to that text the way it develops throughout Scripture. And you also kind of see it developing anyways with the building of the city in chapters 4 and 5. That's and right. You, you do see it beginning to go forth. Okay, um, another question would be, who is doing this cultural analysis well in the Christian community? Mm. And what resources would you recommend to help us think critically about mm. culture? Oh, that's great. Great question. So many books to recommend. I love recommending books. Um, so one person in years ago who did well with this was uh, Francis Schaeffer. If you've heard the name Francis Schaeffer. One of his protégés who is now himself in his 70s, is Oz Guinness. Anything Oz Guinness reads is, uh, uh, writes or, or, or speaks on is usually very helpful. He's very good, I think, at analyzing. Um, 
Revolutionary Games. Yes. Yeah, so Al Walters has got a little book, like mine. It's a small book. I like small books because I only have a limited amount of time sometimes. And Creation Regained is a penetrating analysis of what we've been talking about today, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you like blogs and podcasts, I think Al Mohler's podcast, he does a very good job of alerting us to uh, all sorts of things. Um, um, and would you, say, would you say Keller's a pretty good oh, analyst? Yeah. Yeah, hardly anyone like Keller as a pastor, um, you know, because he has really put in the hard work of exegeting the text of Scripture and exegeting his cultural context, which is New York, primarily. And he stayed in New York. He doesn't travel around and speak at a lot of events. And he's done really well, and I think we do well to imitate uh, Tim Keller. Any others that strike you? Well, Well, you know, in the arts, uh, there's there's an artist named Makoto Fujimura, uh, do you guys know Fujimura? So uh, he's a pretty incredible guy. He's really solid. He's a member of Tim Keller's church, and he's doing a lot of cultural analysis. Now he's just written a book on it, and I forget the name of it. Um, in the sciences, uh, I'm not thinking of the best one at the moment. So I do have recommended reading lists in each of the chapters. I think uh, on political realities, I like what Russell Moore is doing at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Um, I like his tone, that he has Christian virtue on display in the public square instead of anger, defiance, and vengeance, that there's grace and joy even when he has to, t- draw, when he has to say some very hard things. Um, yeah. oh. Good. That's yeah. helpful. And there's lots of reading lists. Every chapter in the book has recommended reading. Yeah, I think Francis Schaeffer has something on art mm-hmm. as well. Art in the Bible. Ecology. Yep. Yeah, he, he's, uh, he's very, I think he's very accessible, actually. Mm-hmm. Not too dated, even though he's been dead for about... It's 20-some-odd years. Okay, another question would be, what are some basic guidelines or questions to ask to assess and think about cultural issues? So I think you touched on that, mm-hmm. some basic questions, those three mm-hmm. questions. Would you amplify on that at all? Or? Yeah, and I just want to start by saying, do you all know that you have a pretty smart pastor? Do you realize how rare it is that you've got a guy who can stand up and recommend the kind of books that he recommends and teach the way he teaches? <laughs> no, seriously. No, I mean, he's... No, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I say that behind his back all the time. I'm not saying it because he's, he's standing here. Um, you know, I think so guidelines for cultural interaction and engagement. You know, I gave my three questions. And those are sort of architectonic questions. Um, I think another thing that I would say is, is uh, always praying for wisdom and discernment. Because a lot of times the realm that we're interacting in, the Bible doesn't speak to it in like a one-on-one explicit direct manner. So we're praying for wisdom and discernment for the Spirit of God to help us to know what to do. Um, I think we want to think about these realities in the presence of other people who are believers and especially who have expertise in the realms that we're interacting in. So there's wisdom and discernment. There's community, Christian community. Um, There's also, I think, virtue. I mean, Christian virtue, godliness, and sometimes that's not on display. We're so worried about the rational aspect of our cultural engagement or the whatever that we sometimes can forget, or at least professor types can forget that the godliness that comes through, the grace and the joy. And when we get into the realm of politics, I mean, you mentioned politics. I mean, one of the things, one, here's what, there's a few things that really bother me. I think these are things we would agree on, and if, if you don't, you can, you know, speak a word back to your people. I think one of the things that's hard, a lot of evangelicals are registered as political conservatives, and I know I am, okay? And, and uh, so a lot of political conservatives watch Fox News, and, and I do. But you need to be very careful that the Fox News narrative is not the primary narrative of the world, that the Bible is the primary narrative of the world. And on the other side, CSNBC, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, is not the true story of the whole world. The Bible is the true story of the whole world. So keep that in mind, that the true story of the whole world, what you can really trust is not what a television show tells you. It's what we have in Scripture um, and then I think uh, there's the virtue that needs to be on display. What, here's what I see with conservatives and liberals politically as I see ungodliness. I see people who are willing, more than happy to misrepresent their opponents on both sides of the spectrum because that's what it takes to win. You know, and so I think we're not, we're not at liberty to misrepresent our opponents and lie about them, right, in order to win. And, uh, um, and what we want people to get the sense of, even if we have to say some really hard things, and even if we're going to be looked at as morally reprehensible people, we have got to find a way of saying them where there's joy evident. 
and not just bitterness and anger. And that, that's happening, and it, I think it's, there's a chance that it could happen in even increasing and increasingly bad manner in upcoming decades. And we've got to be careful for that not and to be so, the case. And so what feeds that joy? So you're confronted mm. with the, the harsh reality of your kind of world being challenged yeah. at varying degrees. Yeah. So what feeds that yeah. joy in the face of such what you would perceive as evil? And See what I mean? That's what I should have said a minute ago, and he's so kind. He's phrasing this as a question. Uh, that's really good. I mean, the joy is this, that there is a king who is coming back. He has put the flag in the ground with his life, death, and resurrection, and he is coming back, and our joy and our hope is in that, not in what happens in the short term. And even in the midst of tears and pain, and there's going to be a lot of that in the future, there is still joy. Joy is not killed by tears and pain. Joy flourishes even in the midst of tears and pain. And people have got to see that there really is a joy. And uh, and the only way they'll see that often is if everything else in life is ripped away from us. And politically, everything is being ripped away from us. And if we can still exhibit joy and peace. So basically, unbelievers can't put it in terms of idolatry, but if you want to find an idol in your life, find whatever, if it was taken from you, would destroy you, make you furious and angry and afraid. And I think for many of us, we have idols operative, and that is that we have an easy, comfortable life in our country. And of course, we do want to have an easy, comfortable life. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. But when you want that in an ultimate manner, such that when it's taken away from you, you're willing to sin with your attitude, you found a false god that you've been worshiping. So. Okay, two questions. One would be, how should Christians watch uh, Game of Thrones? <laughs> so, I, you know, I actually... Maybe you can explain just briefly the Game of Thrones. I actually don't know anything about it. Okay. I've not watched it. I know that it, it gets mentioned on Twitter a lot. I am married now with three children, and with the particular son that I have, the two-year-old that I have, and also the daughters and my job, I have not been able to see much of anything recently, so I'm just going to have to pass on Game of Thrones. Well, let me just throw this, and what I'd like to do maybe going forward is take some of these other topics. You took movies on today, and hopefully this is good. (laughs) Really, you set up a good paradigm. I, I remember trying to take our kids to think critically through movies. I loved the idea. They didn't. And, uh, and it, it was a real... So what was the point? What do you mean, what was the point? Dad was great. He shot him, he shot him. I yeah. about, who was the bad guy? I, so I, I, it's a great thing to do. Just be patient. Um, yeah. So one question I would have... Well, maybe you know what? I think I want to ask that. Uh, what I'd like to do is have you come okay. back and okay. speak more specifically to okay. uh, maybe next time to politics. Okay. Because you know, we have these situations where Baker sued, you know, spent yeah. $135,000 in Indiana. And, and there, there's a debate, you know, if, if you're invited to a homosexual wedding, do, do you bake a cake for it? Or do you just go attend it? I mean, you know, there are various responses that we can make depending upon who we are or the role we're playing. And so those are some, I think those questions are, are going to become greater and greater, and they're going to be creeping closer and closer yeah. into our lives. But, but that will just be a tease for the next one. So yeah. maybe what we can do is I can give thanks to God yeah. for Bruce. Thank you very much. Did it in a winsome way, sweet way, prepared. Thank you for that. You come here. It is a Sunday night, and you helped us flourish in thinking about Thank this. You. And um, And then we can have coffee and, uh, and conclude after.